this morning is from the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, chapter 1 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he already had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not. The sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. You know, when I went to bed last night, I wondered, are we going to have any pie here at all tomorrow? And oh, me of little faith. <laughs> There's plenty of pie. We'll get to it later, okay? Um, but um, the other day, I was reading through the headlines, you know, kind of doom scrolling, if I'm honest, on the internet, looking at all the stories that were popping up, when all of a sudden, there was this headline that grabbed my attention. And this is what it says, Central Kentucky man flees the police on a tractor, right? 
And so you know how it is. You see that and you're like, oh, you've got to click in. Like clickbaits, mission accomplished. And as you click into it, you hope and pray that there is a video. And lucky for us, there is one. Unfortunately, it's a little rough because it's being taken by a cell phone. And can you tell what this man is riding while he was taking it? A golf cart because the tractor had led the police to a golf course in his attempt to escape. Here's the backstory. He was at a, a, gas, a gas station getting gas in his tractor when he was approached by the police. We don't know why. The story didn't tell us. It doesn't matter, though. Whenever the police approach him, he takes off in his tractor, going straight through an intersection and almost running over one of the officers with one of his back tires. But he doesn't stop from there. You know, he goes on and he goes through a stop sign. He goes onto a walking path where he almost takes out a couple of bikers. And then he eventually makes his way after going through some backyards to the Berea Golf Club. And so you saw him kind of speeding along. Um, I don't know what his what his plan was from there once he got to the golf course. But eventually he kind of ran into a ditch and he jumped off and decided he was going to flee on foot. But at that point, the police officer's taser quickly caught up with him. His, his attempt to get away was over. Um, and so that kind of like led me down the rabbit trail. You know how this goes. It's like, oh, if he took a tractor, I wonder what other kind of like wild attempts people have made to try to get away from the police. And I found another one of this man who was in England. Um, he was fleeing from the police and he decided he was going to jump into a boat and take off down a canal. And so he gets in the boat, he takes off, but the boat that he chose its top out speed was four miles an hour. <laughs> and so the police officer was on a bike and he just like leisurely rode beside him down the canal until he could intercept him. You know, we've all heard wild stories like this, right? Of people thinking that they could finally be the one that just makes their clean getaway and gets off scot-free. But really in this situation, the odds are kind of stacked against you if you try to flee the police. Um, you know, the LAPD says that only about 18% of the people that get away from them when they take off from the police, and if there's a helicopter involved, that that percentage goes down way, way lower. And of course, if you are a part of that small percentage of people who get away, you're just like compounding your problems right down the road. It's just making things worse for yourself eventually. And so the bottom line is this, you know, don't try what we saw up there at home, okay? It is not a good idea to try to flee the police. But today we turn our attention to a person who tried to flee someone much mightier than the police force, the prophet Jonah, who tried um, very hard, you know, he had this audacity to try to outrun God himself, and often when we hear that story, our first reaction is just to, you know, kind of like shake our heads and disbelieve that he would even attempt such a futile feat. But can we all get real and honest here, right? All of us have tried to flee God at some point or another, right? We've all done it. Every single one of us has tried to resist God by running away in one direction or another, Last week, we started exploring together the journey that God desires to take all of us on, a journey in which we are shaped and molded more into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. And we said that it starts with an encounter. That's kind of the first stop along the way, an encounter in which God 
um, takes the initiative and seeks us out, an encounter in which God reveals something of who he is to us and then invites us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. However, if, if you took that time this, this past week as, as we kind of guided you to do in your journals, um, I wonder if you noticed this. If you look back on those times where you've had an encounter with God, do you notice that often our first reaction, not always, but often, is to resist the invitation that God is extending to us? Whether it's following him in the first place or uh, us making some kind of change in ourselves or in the world around us or us serving him in some way, we, we often object to God's invitation. And we do so with a long list of very pointed questions for him. You know, we say, God, I need to know. I have to know who and what and why. So if you remember Moses last week, sometimes when God comes to us and invites us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, our first reaction is to say, who, like, who am I that you would ask me to do this? Our reaction is to act like God must have, you know, mistaken our identity. Our reaction is is to say, surely he is having some momentary lapse in judgment. Doesn't he know all of our faults and failures? Doesn't he know our, our past and the fact that we don't have all that much to offer? There has to be someone more qualified. That's what we tried to argue for a while. And when that resistance doesn't seem to be working for us, often we'll change our tactic and we'll kind of run off in another direction saying, what? You know, we'll say, God, not just who am I, but what will others think? You know, Um, God, yeah, I'll go do this for you. But are other people really going to buy it? What's going to be the word on the street? What are going to be the whispers behind my back? Nobody is going to think that I'm really called by you. Nobody's going to want to follow me anywhere. But then there's other times after we've kind of gone through the who and the what that we turn to a different tactic to try to outrun God. And this is the tactic that our friend Jonah today models so exceptionally well for us. Not why, not what, but rather we say to God, why? Why that? Sometimes we try to run away because let's just like kind of put it all out there. We just really don't like what God has in mind for us, right? We have thoughts and opinions. We have feelings and convictions. We have ideas and plans that God failed to consult before setting this direction. How inconsiderate, right? And so we just think that God should just toss out his plan, rethink his whole approach, and just get on board with our program. When the book of Jonah opens, it's not abundantly clear that that this is the objection that Jonah himself is raising with God. But by the time you reach chapter 4 in Jonah, it's a very short book if you want to go home and sit down and read it from front to back. When you get to chapter 4, what you'll discover is is that this this reason becomes very blatant. It becomes very clear. You see, the book of Jonah, it opens with an encounter like we talked about before. It says in verse 1, Chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. So like any other encounter, God takes the initiative. He's the one who seeks Jonah out. 
And then God reveals something of himself. He reveals that he does care and is concerned about the problem of evil in our world. And then he invites Jonah to be a part of something bigger than himself. He calls him to go and to preach to the people of Nineveh. It sounds pretty clear, right? Sounds easy enough, especially since Jonah is a prophet. Pretty much his entire job description is to hear what God says and then go and state it to others. However, you and I, we aren't living in the 8th century BC to understand like all of the hurt and all of the history that just speaking Nineveh's name would have stirred up inside of Jonah. When we hear the place Nineveh, it doesn't really mean anything to us, does it? Um, It's not a place we've heard about in the latest breaking news. I'm going to guess that none of you are planning your next vacation to that spot, right? Anybody? Am I wrong? (laughs) Yeah, like it's just not even on our radar, right? It's this place that the Bible seems to mention from from time to time that has no consequence to us at all. But here's what we need to know about this ancient city. This ancient city was located on the Tigris River in what is modern-day Iraq, You can kind of see it there. And if you look closely at the map, you can tell that it was a part of this place called the Assyrian Empire. That still might not mean a lot to us, but let me explain. The Assyrian Empire was this constant threat to God's people. There was conflict between them like all the time, battles back and forth. And eventually this Assyrian Empire is going to conquer God's people. Eventually, this empire will not only come in and overrun their land, but it's going to carry Jonah's people off and away into exile. This city, Nineveh, which God calls a great city in verse 1, this city that Jonah will later say it takes him three days' journey to go across its breath, this place that had 120,000 people in population, it would actually become the capital of this Assyrian Empire. It's a place that was known for its violence and its terrorism. It was a place that, that was known for atrocities, a place, as I said, that will overrun God's people, a place known for its cruelty toward others. And so with that context kind of in mind, we can kind of understand why as soon as God speaks the, the place Nineveh in chapter 1, verse 1, why Jonah is going to balk at this, while Jonah is not going to want to have any part of it at all, while he is going to be reluctant to go. But it is in the final chapter of Jonah that the reason why he resists comes into sharper focus. It's not that Jonah is scared of the people of Nineveh. It's not that he's heard about their violence and terrorism. And he's kind of saying to God, who am I that I should go? You know, I don't have what it takes to go to this people. It's not so much that he's saying, you know, what are others going to think? You know, God, are, are, is everybody back in Israel going to be mad at me? No. But rather, this is what he says. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to, why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He resists God's call to go to Nineveh because why, God? Why that? 
He doesn't like where God is going with this mission. He is afraid that God is going to show grace to a group of people that he absolutely does not think deserves it. An enemy that has done atrocious things. And spoiler alert, he's not wrong to be concerned that God is going to do that. Our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's even true toward the people of Nineveh. As they will hear God's message and they will fast and they will weep and they will repent. And so Jonah, he, he, he knows this about God. And he says, God, why that? Anybody but them. And so instead of saying yes to God's invitation to go to the great city of Nineveh, he takes off in the complete opposite direction. And whenever I say that, I'm not just saying that for dramatic effect, okay? Let's look at the map together. Okay, here he is in Gath Hefer, where he was from. You can see that they're kind of in the center of those three places. You can see that Nineveh is northeast, right? And so where does he go? He goes southwest to Joppa. And if that were not far enough, he jumps in a boat from there and he takes off to this place called Tarshish, which our best guess was located in modern day Spain. This man is doing everything in his power that he can to try to outrun God. But his efforts will prove about as effective as trying to flee from the police on a tractor or in a boat that tops out at four miles an hour. Here's what I want us to take away from this story of Jonah. First of all, we can't outrun God's presence. Jonah 1.3 says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. This word, ran away, um, if you went back to the original language, it's not talking so much about running away from one place to another, but rather it's talking about making a break in a relationship. It's talking about leaving behind one connection and going off and trying to form completely new ones. Jonah wants to be done with God. But despite all his best attempts, what he eventually will realize is that God's still right there waiting for him. Perhaps Jonah had forgotten what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. The psalmist says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You know, when, when we run off from God, this is what it kind of reminds me of. It kind of reminds me of little kids playing hide and seek. You know, you say like, it's your turn to go hide. And the kids just like cover their eyes and they think that they've magically disappeared, right? You cannot even see them anymore. <laughs> and as parents and grownups, when we watch kids in that situation, what do we do? We smile, right? We smile at how cute their earnest yet misguided attempt is to hide and I tend to think that that's exactly what God does when we try to run away and hide from him. I think he lovingly smiles and he just waits for us to open our eyes and to realize that we're still here and that they never actually went anywhere. Evidently, 
There's nothing like being miraculously rescued in the midst of a storm by being swallowed by a big old fish to open your eyes a little bit, right? (laughs) And so in the belly of that fish, Jonah realizes that despite his best efforts, that God is still present. In fact, all of chapter 2 in Jonah is, is him just praising God for his presence, praising God for being there for him, for hearing his cause of distress when he needed him most. Try as we may, we cannot outrun God's presence. But the story of Jonah, it also reminds us of something else. We can't outrun God's purposes. God came to Jonah, inviting him to be a part of this this thing that was so much bigger than himself. He wanted to partner with Jonah. He desired for Jonah to experience the fulfillment of being a part of extending hope and healing and restoration and redemption to the people of of Nineveh. But the truth of the matter is that, that this was something that God was going to figure out how to do with or without Jonah, right? If not Jonah, God would have found another way to extend his loving grace to the people of Nineveh. However, after his stay in the whale hotel, we will call it, right? The most creative Airbnb concept ever conceived of. um, Jonah decides that he will go and preach to the people of Nineveh. The fish spits him out on the shore. He goes and he proclaims God's message. And wouldn't you know it, it leads to them experiencing God's love and mercy for themselves. It leads to their salvation, Of course, remember, this is exactly what Jonah was afraid of before he ever took off from home. And so at the end of Jonah, we find him pouting a little bit. But the fact remains that God's purposes were still accomplished. You guys, here's the deal. Our God, he is working out his purposes on this cosmic scale. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God's heavenly kingdom has already taken root right here on earth. And God's limitless love is spreading more every day. And he is not going to stop until heaven and earth are perfectly one. Our God is moving us toward that day where he will set all things right in our world with his love and his justice and his his peace. And there is nothing and there is no one that is going to stand in his way. He is going to do it, and he's got this, you guys. But in his love, in his love, he invites us to find our purpose in his. In his love, he allows us to be the instruments through which he extends his, his hope and his healing and his restoration, his redemption to the world around us. This isn't a have-to kind of thing for us. It's a get-to. And so to all of our who am I's and what will people think resistance, God, he assures us over and over and over again that he's the one that's doing this thing and that he's the one that will be at work in us and through us. We cannot outrun God's purposes. And then finally, we cannot outrun God's love for us. You know, when Jonah initially runs away, we might think that God would just at that point say, fine, you're out, right? I'm done, move along, I'll go find someone else. But he doesn't. 
And then even at the end of Jonah, after God has done this great thing through his preaching uh, and Jonah is sitting there pouting about it, you know, we might think at that point that God just decides to strike him with lightning and say, all right, now I'm really done. But in that moment, you know what God does instead? As he's sitting there pouting on this hillside overlooking the city, God sits there with him and he's still talking to him. He's still teaching him. He's still shaping and molding him more into the image of Jesus, just waiting, just waiting to make his next invitation. You know, so often I think we can get caught up into thinking that it's like one strike and you're out with God, right? If you passed up one invitation, that's it. You're not getting another one, you know, or that if we said no way back when, that there's no possibility of us ever getting back on board again, that God has done, that we've missed our chance. It becomes, honestly, one of our strongest arguments for future resistance. We say, hey, God, remember I already messed up back then. You don't want me now. However, the truth of the matter is this. Our God's love is relentless. His love is relentless for us, and he never, ever, ever gives up. I know that, you know, standing up here saying that it might sound like this nice, fluffy platitude, right? Uh, That doesn't really have any real substance. But as a person who has spent a good part of her life fleeing from God, I feel like I can say it with some, some authority a little bit. I feel like I can tell you that it's not just fluff. It's for real, guys. Granted, my resistance did not land me in the belly of a fish. It did lead me to one day standing in a dark supply closet all by myself. Let me explain a little bit, all right? Um, Pastor Adam was my campus minister. Many of you guys know that, our senior pastor um, down the street at Melrose. Um, And he called me out of the blue one day. I wasn't expecting to hear from him at all. And at that point, I was working for a different denomination. And so when this Methodist pastor calls me in the middle of my work day and talks to me about considering a job at Broadway. I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so the only thing I could think to do was to go and hide in the supply closet that was at the middle of this denominational building where I was working. So I'm standing there on the dark, talking to Adam. Um, my mind is racing the entire time because I'm, I'm kind of shocked, you know, like, why is he calling me out of the blue? But the truth of the matter is, my, my entire life, as I look back, was kind of like leading up to that moment. Because the truth is, from the time I was like seven or eight years old, like I had this strong sense that I was called to do what I'm doing today, to tell other people about Jesus. There was like nothing more exciting to me, nothing that, that seemed to bring me greater joy than, than knowing I could be a part of doing that. But... I then spent the next 15 to 20 years running away from that sense of call in my life. Um, The fact that in the denomination I came from, that girls did not do what I'm doing here today gave me a pretty strong argument that I used whenever I needed it, right? Like, I'm disqualified because I'm, I'm a girl. I can't do that. That's a pretty valid objection. But in addition to that, I made every single, like, who am I and what will people think argument under the sun. You know, like, truth be told, I'm a pretty shy person. (laughs) I prefer to be behind the scenes. Some days I still feel like throwing up before I get up here and talking to you all. You know, like, that's the truth of the matter. You know, I'm a person who has a lot of self-doubt, and I'm a person who still has lots of questions about God. And so why would anyone want me up here leading them? 
And so I used all of those objections to to run away from God forever, it seemed like. But despite going to college and, and studying to become a school teacher as one of my attempts to flee, I just like could not escape this pool, right? Like I just couldn't help but try to find some place within the church where I could serve. And so um, I had found this little space within my denomination uh, where I could serve, you know. Um, It was a place that if I kind of stayed small enough and silent enough and played by all the rules, I could get away with, like, doing what I love. And, And so I was willing to settle for that. You know, I had this plan, and I had worked it, and I had figured it all out and and followed the plan to get to where I was, and it was kind of familiar, and it was safe, and it was comfortable. And so when Adam calls me in that supply closet and says, will you come to Broadway, my first response was, no way, right? I'm not even going to consider that. And so um, once I finally emerged from the supply closet. I sat down at my computer and I remember writing him this email and it said, you know, thank you so much for thinking about me. Thank you for even thinking that I could do this. But then I proceeded to list all the um, why that's that I had already voiced to God in that short walk from the supply closet back to my computer, which was like, I had just moved to Louisville to go to seminary. I was on track to graduate quickly so we could start a family. Um, I had just been working at the denominational office in this job that I had like worked years to get for like three months when he was calling me. None of this was in the plan. It was going to blow up my entire life. And then to kind of top it all off, I knew that it was going to blow up some of my relationships with the people I love the very most who were going to be very disappointed in me if I walked away from this denomination that I had grown up in and and go to a rival one. (laughs) Unfortunately, sometimes we think that way. Um, And so moving to Bowling Green did not fit into my well-crafted plan. And, um, And so I said no. Like I had so many other invitations that God had extended to me along the way, too many to count if I go back and look at it. But as I prayed over the next few weeks, I, I felt this sense of, of peace um, that, that God was, despite my no, re-extending this invitation to me. And it, it kind of occurred to me that it was going to be too big and too great of an adventure to just walk away from. There was no way that I could not be a part of what God was up to in that moment. And so I reached back out to Adam, and the rest, as they say, is history, you know? It was a very hard tr- transition. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I would choose it a million times over again because there's nothing like the thrill of being a part of this bigger thing that God is doing in our world. And so perhaps you have sensed God inviting you to go or to grow or to give in some kind of way, and you have been resisting him. Perhaps you have told him no over and over and over again. Perhaps you have been trying to outrun him with all your might. And so today to you all, all I really want you to hear is this. It's not too late. It's not too late. God's invitation remains. No matter how hard you've tried to run away, he is still present. His purposes still stand. And his love cannot be swayed. We can't outrun God. And so what would it look like for you to say yes to him today? 
Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you today remembering that you are the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know us through and through, and that you are always as present as our own breath. God, we thank you that you look at us and you love us and you want us to experience full life with you, full life that that looks like um, knowing you and serving you and being a part of this bigger thing that you are up to in our world. And so God, today we bring before you all of those objections we like to raise. Who am I? What will people think? Why that? And we ask you, God, to help those objections fall away. We ask you to allow us to hear your voice as the loudest and most clear voice in our life today. And we ask that you would help us to trust that you will empower us to take our next steps as we say yes to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.